It'll be the third book in the New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, you can use the table of contents like you would a normal book, and that'll direct you to the page number. We're moving through the Apostles' Creed, uh, the most ancient, the oldest of uh, church creeds that, that we know of. And there are a couple different versions of floating around out there, but we basically know what the church from the very beginning uh, confessed together are the basic truths, tenets of uh, the faith. We've printed it out for you. We've emailed it to you. Uh, what we're going to do now is recite the first portion together. Now, I only want you to recite along with me what we've already covered so that you know what you're saying. Right? Hopefully, you've been following us uh, with the sermons. So the first slide is going to be in green font. We're going to say that slide together. And then the second slide will be in the regular white font. And then I'll read that to you because that's the portion we're going to talk about today. So would you just one last time stand for me as we confess this together? It'll be very short because it's just the first uh, two pieces. And let's read this slide together. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. I'll read this to you. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So we can leave that up for a few moments. You can be seated. The doctrine of the virgin birth is what I want to focus on here as we see it here. It's about Christ's conception by the Holy Spirit and Mary's involvement is that she was the virgin woman through whom uh, the Holy Spirit brought uh, the Savior, Jesus Christ, as the God-man. Now, uh, for many of us, I think we might just take it for granted. Yeah, the virgin birth, okay. Uh, but the doctrine of the virgin birth has been under attack forever. <laughs> it's always been under attack, and it's still under attack now. If you Google it or YouTube it, you'll see arguments for and against it. Some are better than others. Uh, but it is still argued today. You have mainline denominations that have sought to completely dump it, and some of that is just because uh, there's a lack of belief in anything supernatural and those kinds of things. Um, one, one person told me when I was in college, another student told me, I think the only reason why the church teaches the virgin birth is uh, so that you know, we won't sleep around or something like that. Uh, and, and so I, I challenged her, and she never talked to me again after that. But... Uh, you know, people have their own reasons for rejecting what the church from the, from the earliest times has, has said, hey, the Bible is clear on this because it's, it's in the earliest of creeds. And the creeds that go after the Apostles' Creed uh, keep it there because it's uh, believed that it's that taught clearly by Scripture. Now, some will make the argument based on the usage of words. And I don't want to get too technical but I want you to be aware, if, if you are in conversation with someone that denies the virgin birth, they might drop a surprise on you, and you go, no, that's not true, and then maybe you go home to research, you go, oh, that is kind of true, and then you feel like your whole faith is shattered, and so I do want to make you aware where the argument lies. You remember that prophecy in Isaiah 7:14? We won't have this for you, and you don't need to turn there, but you remember that prophecy in Isaiah 7:14, where the prophet explains that there's going to be a sign that this prophecy is going to be true, the prophecy concerning Ahaz, the king, and uh, the sign is that a virgin, a young woman, uh, uh, depending on your translation, 
uh, is going to give birth, and this, this child will be na- called Emmanuel, which means God with us, and that will be the sign that these prophecies are going to come to pass. Matthew cites that passage, talking about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, and says what Isaiah was talking about there, that's basically what's going to happen here. Now, here's where the argument usually lies. The word used for virgin in Isaiah 7 is Alma. And it doesn't mean virgin. It means young woman. It's kind of like the word maiden or damsel. It could be a virgin. When you think of a maiden, you might often think of a virgin. When you think of a damsel in distress, you might often think of a virgin, but it doesn't necessarily mean virgin. It's more about the youthfulness of the woman. That's true. That's true. The word can go either way. It can mean virgin. It depends on the context, how the word is used, just like any uh, word that we might use today. Now, what Christians often say is what Matthew is doing is he's taking that word, when he writes it in Greek, a different language, okay? He's reading the Hebrew that Isaiah was written in, writes in a different language in Greek, in Koine Greek, and he uses the word parthenos. And what Christians often say is parthenos always means virgin. It must mean virgin. So Matthew is reading it and going, no, it's, it can go either way, but I'm telling you the way that it goes. I'm telling you what it ultimately meant is virgin. Problem there is there are instances of the use of the word parthenos that don't mean virgin. It normally means virgin. It depends on the context. The other day, our family, was wa- we were watching Home Alone 2. When did that come out? Like 92? Somewhere around there? Home Alone 2? Anyway. Little kid Kevin is walking through the park, and he sees a strange, large woman with raggedy clothes and pigeons dumping all over her. You remember the scene. And uh, Kevin looks at her and goes, sick! Right? Now, the youngest of my children goes, what does he mean? And the reason why she asked what does he mean is because what Kevin meant is gross. That's going to make me sick. Right? But increasingly today, sick means cool. How did it get there? I don't know. We don't always know the path. But, you know, teenagers are strange and come up with weird stuff. All of our generations have done it. And so my youngest hears sick as cool, awesome, great. But here's Kevin using it back in 1992, and she can tell he doesn't mean that. And therefore she's confused. How can she tell? She can tell by his face that he's not looking at the pigeon lady going, I wish I had pigeons. She can tell by his face that he's not looking at the pigeon lady going, wow, that's really cool. I wish I had poop all over me. I want to look poor and destitute. I wish I was a vagabond. Clearly, from the context, he doesn't mean that, but she knows he's using a word that she knows means cool. Context. So, The debate lies on the usage of the word, and I think that's the wrong place to make the debate. We have to look at the context to decide what Matthew meant by Parthenos. So let's look at the story. Let's look at the nativity scene again. Not the nativity scene, but the announcement in Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1. And yeah, it's a little nerdy to talk about grammar and usage and context, but... Uh, we don't want to stand and proclaim something that we just believe because grandma taught us, because we memorized some creed. 
we want to look at the text and ask, does the Bible actually teach that Jesus was born from a virgin woman? Well, let's look at the announcement, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, you might look at that and go, well, yeah, clearly it says virgin. Right, but the word behind the word, this wasn't written in English, it was written in Greek, and the word behind the word can go either way. Okay? Um, it normally means virgin, but it is possible. There are times where it's, it doesn't mean that. So as we look at the context, we see we need to unpack what, what's going on here. Why is she being referred to as a Parthenos or virgin? Well, he says in verse 28, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but she's, she's uh, troubled uh, because she's not sure uh, it, it, what, what the other shoe that's going to drop is going to be about. You know, is, this like a, is, is he preparing me for bad news? Uh, this is weighty. We talked about angelic appearances are not cuddly, you know, sort of soft, pillowy experiences. They're usually accompanied by fear. The person that sees the angel is afraid. And so she is troubled by the saying. She's wondering what is going on here. What kind of greeting is this? In verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek for Joshua, which means uh, God delivers, God saves. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, of his kingdom there will be no end. Now this angelic announcement of a miraculous birth has already been patterned. We've seen this multiple times in Scripture. We see the angelic announcement concerning Isaac. We see the angelic announcement concerning the birth of Samuel, right, with Hannah. We see the angelic announcement with uh, Samson and his parents. We saw that at Christmas Eve, right? And so you see this angelic announcement. You're, you're, you are unable to have a child right now, but you're going to have a child in a miraculous way. Uh, why should this be any different? Right? None of those other moms were virgins. They were barren. And so it was miraculous, but none of them were virgins. They all had babies the regular way that you would have a baby. And what was miraculous about it was that, that they were barren, but not that they were virgins. So why should this be any different? Well, it's different because it's qualitatively different. All of those babies that were born had purposes, but none of them would match what is announced concerning this child. You found favor with God, verse 31. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Okay, this is about deliverance. This is about salvation. Yes. Verse 32, he will be great. Okay, a lot of people have been great, but he will be called the son of the Most High. That's new. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Whoa, everything the Old Testament has been predicting, prophesying, everything we've been longing for is going to be in you, Mary. This is it. This is the ultimate solution, the solution to solve all solutions. No more cycles in the book of Judges. No more kings that rise and fall. 
he will rise to this throne, the one who is supposed to come forever. He's going to, he's going to finally solve this thing. He is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the serpent crusher. This is it. And so it's qualitatively different from all the others, and so it would make sense if this was qualitatively different in the way that he comes about through virgin birth. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. How come the other kings aren't there anymore? Because they all failed, because they're all sinners, because they all, they couldn't do what they were supposed to do. But Jesus will. Jesus won't fail And so he will never lose the throne. He'll never be defeated. He'll never defeat himself by sinning or disobeying. And so that throne and that reign will stay intact forever. This is weighty. In verse verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, this gives us a a hint that Mary understands a little bit more than what we just see in in the bare text by itself. Because that's kind of a dumb question. She's already betrothed to Joseph, right? You know what that means. They're, they're engaged, but not engaged like, like Kay Jewelers engaged. You know, sort of like uh, you can be engaged and then be unengaged. And it's sad, but it's not that big of a deal. This is a, a huge deal. She's Joseph's. And Joseph is hers. It's locked in. It's just a matter of time for the wedding to take place. Now, the angel announces, you're going to have a baby, and her response is, how is it possible that I'm going to have a baby? Should somebody pull out an ancient chalkboard and show her, you know, teach her the bird and the bees? Is she that dull? No. By the question she's asking, we know that she understands this is going to happen now. Not 10 months from now, not a year from now, not two years. He's not saying eventually you and Joseph are going to have a baby. She knows it's not going to involve Joseph, and she's worried because that's weird. And she's, cons- and she's wondering, how can this possibly happen? I'm not with Joseph yet. The only reason why that makes sense is because the angel is implying, and she's rightly understanding, this is happening now, not later. Right? Otherwise, the question doesn't make any sense. Or she's really a tool. And of course she's not. Of course she's not. So she asked the question because she knows that the conception is going to happen prior to marriage. That's the only reason why the question makes sense. So what is the context that we're dealing with here? He doesn't tell her, Mary, are you a goofball? You're going to marry Joseph, and then after marrying Joseph, you'll have the baby. No, he goes, no, no, this is going to be miraculous. So her question is correct. Because otherwise the angel would just rebuke that. What are you trying to say? We're, no, I'm not going to disrupt the marriage. You're going to get married and have it. But here's the angel's response instead. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived the son. And this is the sixth month with her who was, who was called barren. So Elizabeth is, is just like the other types of Uh, impossible births in the Bible because she's barren and she's already pregnant with John. Verse 37, For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So how do we know that virgin means virgin here? Not because the word can only mean virgin, but context. 
And the context is clearly a miraculous birth that doesn't involve a father, a human father. Because that's the only reason her question makes sense. And if her question didn't make sense, the angel wouldn't have answered it like it did make sense. The angel answers her question like it does make sense, which means she expected to have a child conceived within her without a human father. And when she asks, how is that possible? The angel's answer is, nothing is impossible with God. That's how it's possible. So we have a virgin birth, or better put, a virgin conception. It's the conception that is the issue. The birth was actually quite normal. Now some people uh, think, well, it's, it's too gross to have Jesus passing through blood and fluid, so he just kind of goes through the wall like a miraculous C-section, and there's no openings, and it, this is nonsense. He came in complete humility and was born through the normal process. So the gestation and the birth, normal. What's miraculous is the conception. So we should probably refer to it as the, the, the virgin conception. And I think that that truth, the fact that Mary was a virgin when she, was, when she conceived uh, uh, Jesus Christ in her womb, is confirmed by the sign that the angel gives her. She's like, how is this going to happen? And the angel basically says, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. And he's going to conceive this child inside of you. There's nothing sexual there. It's an overshadowing. It's a, it's a power. And then the sign that she doesn't ask for, but he gives it to her anyway, is her relative Elizabeth, who's already pregnant with John, who is a woman who can't be pregnant. And so it wouldn't make sense, would it, for him to go, you're going to have a perfectly regular birth. There's nothing, you're not barren. There's nothing wrong with you. Right? Everything works, but just so you know that you're going to have a baby, let me point you to something impossible over here. That only makes sense if he's going, I know this sounds impossible, but the sign to you that God can do impossible things is another impossible thing over here. So what's happening inside her is something impossible. That's why she should be encouraged by Elizabeth's pregnancy. Otherwise, that wouldn't be an encouragement. That would just be like, okay, why do I need that? I'm just going to be pregnant normally. No, not normally. Okay, so the Bible makes it clear that the virgin conception is true. Uh, it's clear from Matthew, it's clear from Luke, and it's not based on the grammar of the word, it's based on the story and the context and what Luke and Matthew are portraying in the entire announcement. Now, why was there a virgin birth? Now, this is a little less clear. So here's what I want to be adamant about. What is clear, what we proclaim when we recite the creed together, is that there was a virgin birth, not why there was a virgin birth. That there was a virgin birth, a virgin conception, we know is clear. Why? Because the Bible makes it clear. That's why. We know it because the Bible says it, and the Bible says it clearly in the context. But why is it necessary to have a virgin birth? Uh, when you read through the historical creeds of the church, they have the virgin birth, the virgin conception in there, but they don't elaborate. Other doctrines get elaboration. The Trinity will continue to be unpacked, uh, uh, Nicaea, Chalcedon, and, and so forth. But why the virgin birth? That's a little more debated. 
but I don't think it's unimportant to consider it. I want to propose four reasons, at least four reasons why the virgin conception fits what we see in Scripture. And these are not uh, at the level of clarity that they should be in the creed, but I think they're helpful for us to think about because it's important for us to defend and protect the doctrine of the virgin conception. So I propose these to you, and uh, you can consider them and see if you agree that they match what Scripture teaches us. The first reason I think we have the virgin conception is because it one-ups all the other miraculous births. I think that's appropriate. Samson was born miraculously, and he was a total dud. You know, uh, you know, Isaac was born miraculously, and that's great, but then we don't hear a lot about Isaac. Have you noticed that? You, you see the birth of Isaac, and you see this, this scene. You've got that mountain scene where Abraham's supposed to sacrifice him, but I, I, other than that, you don't see, you know, Isaac's not walking around doing miracles and, and these kind of things. He's, he's serving a purpose as a type pointing forward, and he's continuing that, he's beginning that lineage that we would be looking for the Messiah. I think it's appropriate that Jesus' birth one-ups even John's birth. John is born to, you know, miraculously to a barren woman, but this is like, forget barrenness, there's not even a guy involved, right? There's no human father. It one-ups, uh, supersedes, super, su- uh, surpasses all the other miraculous births, and I think it's pointing to something that's qualitatively different. This is a different child. He's not just another type or picture. He's the fulfillment of the picture. I think that's important. Second, I think this matches how it fulfills that prophecy and that promise in Genesis 3.15 that God is going to bring one who's going to ultimately crush the serpent and only God can bring this about. You can't bring it about. You can't manufacture this. You can't bring it into existence. God is going to do it because only God can bring salvation. The Bible emphasizes this from its first page to its last page. You cannot save yourself. If you approach God thinking, okay, what have I done? What have I not done? Am I good? You're already out. God has to do the work to save you. Now, this matches the entire narrative of Genesis. If you remember reading through Genesis, or if you're about to, and you're, uh, once again, trying to get through the Bible in a year, and you're going to start in a few days, and you start working through the book of Genesis, you'll see the promise of the seed in Genesis 3.15. Eventually, we've got Abraham and Sarah. Sarah can't have babies. And God says, you're going to have a child. And this child is going to start this lineage through whom the whole world will be blessed, right? And then what do Abraham and Sarah do? They're like, where's his baby? Where's his baby? It's not coming. Well, let's bring it into existence ourselves. Bad move, if you recall. They get Hagar involved. Ishmael is born. Then when Isaac is born, it's Isaac versus Ishmael. And that's still a problem today. Well, what Abraham and Sarah are doing is taking the seed promise into their own hands. You remember when they enter the land? And the king sees uh, Sarah, and Sarah's beautiful. And Abraham says, well, let's just lie. Let's lie so that they don't kill me. And if they kill me, you know, this whole seed promise is going to get messed up. Let's lie about it. God has to step in and go, stop trying to derail my plan. Stop trying to take my plan into your own hands. I'm going to deliver this child. No king is going to be a threat. No army is going to be a threat. I'm going to deliver this child. It's my play. It's my move. That's why God rescues them from Exodus with such power and the big plagues and all those kind of things. God is demonstrating you can't save yourselves. I save you. So this is a birth that man had no control over. 
only God had control over. And I think it matches that theme that we see throughout Scripture. Thirdly, we need a Savior, we need a mediator that goes between man and God who is both God and man. And so the virgin birth, I think, matches that. Just the way the creed puts it, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That's another word, way of saying totally divine, but totally human. God didn't just come down as a glowing being and say, I'm going to die for you. Nor did he just choose a man who's normally born and say, how about you? You do it. It has to be both, fully God and fully man. And the virgin birth matches that conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a human woman. And so we get that perfect Savior that fits both of those functions so that he can be that perfect go-between between God and man because he's fully God and he's fully man. The fourth reason is a little more controversial. Now, I'm going to just be real honest and tell you, I have friends, one friend kind of soft rebuked me on it. You Wait, you believe that? I don't know about that. And then he gave me a book to read and I read it and I'm like, this has nothing to do with the conversation. It was kind of weird. As I pluck books from my shelf, trusted authors, trusted pastors, some of them say what I'm about to tell you and others say vehemently, no, not correct. So rather than just leave it out of the sermon, I'm going to propose it. But don't latch onto it quickly. Mull it over, think about it, and you ask yourself, does this match what Scripture says? The more I contemplate it, the more I think about it, the more I think it actually matches what Scripture says. I think that the virgin birth, it seems to be connected to the sinless nature of Christ. The sinless nature of Jesus. That he's born without the original sin that you and I and everyone in this room was born with. The reasons why I see that is, first of all, the text seems to imply it in verse 35. Look at verse 35. The angel says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Okay? So in other words, remember, her question is, how in the world can I possibly have a baby without a human father? And the angel's answer is because the Holy Spirit is going to handle the conception part. Right? Therefore, because the Holy Spirit is conceiving this child, it says, therefore the child to be born will be called holy. So it seems that the angel sees a connection between the holiness of this child, the set-apartness of this child, the perfect nature of this child, and the miraculous conception that brings the child about. The angel seems to see a connection. I don't think that's hard and fast. I don't think that just proves it argument over, but I think it looks connected to me. It looks like it's connected, and I think it makes sense. And the reason why I think it makes sense is because what we need is a new Adam. You remember in the garden, Adam and Eve were there, and Eve bit the fruit, and then Adam bit the fruit, and therefore, after everybody that was born after them are born under Adam and in Adam, and that's why we're in trouble. The book of Romans makes it clear that in Adam we all sinned. We all sinned in Adam. Now, we can debate whether that sounds fair. Before you started making your own decisions, the reason why as a little baby you wanted to snatch toys out of the clutches of another baby why? Because you saw it first, you think it's yours. The reason why you, the first word you learned was no and mine is not because of nurture or environment, but because of nature. 
You were born in sin because in Adam we all sinned. You might go, I wasn't there. The Bible says you were there. Now that's a deep doctrine. It's a big doctrine. I don't have time to unpack all of that, but it's what the Bible says in Romans 5. And so because we were born in one Adam, we're all in trouble. We need another Adam to get us out of trouble. And this is what the Bible teaches. I want to throw a few verses up here if you can follow along. Four verses from Romans chapter 5. And the first one is verse 12. We're we're skipping a a few, but not to try to pull the wool over your eyes. You can pull out your Bibles and go to Romans 5 if you like. But I just kind of want to shorten our time by going to some precise verses. Verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, past tense, when did we all sin? In the sin of the one man. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Hold it there for a second. Everybody sins, all from Adam to Moses. Everybody sinned, but their sin was different than Adam's. Why? Not just because Adam was the first chronologically, but because Adam was the first that started, he was the first domino to get flicked. You ever see a table set with all the dominoes set? The first domino gets flicked, all the dominoes go down, right? It's not just that he sinned first, it's that he sinned as our head, and we're all born from his seed, and so we're born into the same problem that Adam started. That's why his sin is different. Next verse. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. One man gives us death. One man gives us life. The only way the second person can give us life is if he functions as a new head, a new Adam. Next verse. Verse 19, same chapter. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. See? One man disobeyed and we're all made sinners. But in the same way, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is why it doesn't make sense when you think the way to get to heaven is to believe in Jesus Christ and do your own righteousness. Uh Uh-uh. The reason why you're in trouble is because we sinned in Adam. And the only way to get out of it is to be righteous in another Adam. Now you might go, that's unfair. Adam didn't act. And I'm in trouble? That's true, but isn't it also unfair that Jesus doesn't act and I'm suddenly saved? It works in reverse. And so, ironically, we should, it's good news that a head doesn't act. And if we're born in the lineage of that head, that federal head, so to speak, that, that puts us in trouble because that's also the mechanism by which God gets us out of trouble. One man obeys perfectly. None of us obey perfectly, but if we're in him, we can be rescued. That, that, that is amazing. That is amazing news. Starts with bad news. So bad, you didn't even know it was that bad, right? That in Adam we all sin. But it's the same mechanism that God uses to save us. And the only way that works is if Jesus comes as another Adam. Two more verses really quickly in 1 Corinthians 15. The first one, verse 22. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes a lot of the same arguments. I just don't want to walk you through all of them. They're very similar to Romans 5. But here he says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In other words, everyone who's in Christ will be made alive in the same way that they were made dead in Adam. And then in verse 45, he makes it clear. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, quoting Genesis there. 
the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You got two Adams. One imputes death. The other imputes life. And so isn't it fitting, isn't it appropriate that Jesus is born in a way where that headship doesn't fall from Adam to the next person, to the next person, then to Jesus. Jesus, in a sense, dodges it by not being born to a human father. Now, here's why some people really don't like that interpretation. The reason why some people don't like that interpretation is because they will say it makes it look like women don't have a problem. Women are somehow sinless. Women somehow are born without the original sin, and so Mary doesn't pass it on to Jesus because women are sinless. Well, no, that's not true. Remember when we were in, uh, in the book of 1 Timothy, when we were walking through the book of 1 Timothy, uh, that book makes it very clear that the woman, quoting Paul, the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So did, did Eve sin? Yeah, she sinned first. But you notice that Paul in Romans doesn't say, in Eve we all sinned. When did the fall of humanity happen? When Adam bit the fruit. I, we, we can, again, we can debate whether that's fair or whatever, but I think it speaks to headship. This is why when you get to the passages about marriage, and it's like the husband should be taking the lead, the woman should be submissive, the wife should be submissive to the husband, in a church gathering, the, the, the ones that should be in charge of the teaching, they should be male. We walk through those passages, and I know that's controversial today, but it, makes, it fits everything that the Bible communicates. Man fell, humanity fell, when Adam bit the fruit. That doesn't mean Eve didn't sin, she did sin, but her sin doesn't impute fallenness to the next generation. Adam's does. And so I think it's fitting to see in the birth of Jesus Christ the fact that he's fully human is true because Mary is fully human. But there's this lineage of imputed fallenness, depravity, that, is, that we are all born into because your dad imputed it to you. I think it's fitting. Is it necessary? I'm not sure. Must it be this way? I don't know. But I think if it didn't happen biologically, then I think at least it functions symbolically. The fact that Jesus didn't have a human father throws up a flag. Like, wait, this is really different now. Because Samuel was born a sinner. Isaac was born a sinner. Samson was definitely born a sinner. Jesus was not. And even though he will be tempted, he doesn't have that brokenness inside of him that steers him in that direction. He's born perfect, and he doesn't have the imputed sin of the Father's line. He doesn't let women off the hook. We're guilty in different ways. But it's the imputation of death that follows through uh, the male line. And none of us escape that unless we were born without a father. That privilege belongs to Jesus Christ alone. So we need a new Adam to impute life to us. And I think the virgin birth is a big billboard that God is saying, this is what's happening here. This gets us out of the dilemma. This will get us out of the problem. So if you're considering why is it important to believe in the virgin birth, uh, for those of you who are ever in charge of hiring anybody for anything, have you ever hired the wrong person for the job? 
you know, the resume looks good, and then it's, you're just like, ah, should have hired, you know, should have hired someone else. We, we face this dilemma every time we go to the voting booth, and we feel like we have to vote between the lesser of two evils. There's nobody perfect. You're like, who's going to destroy the world less? Right? And so you cast your vote. Many of us will cast a vote according to that ultimate question. I think what the virgin birth does is God announcing, the angel announcing, Scripture announcing that we've got the right person for the job. There, there are no hidden uh, things. There's no surprises later. He's perfectly holy, and that's why he ends up perfectly obeying. That means that you have a perfect hope in Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's still not more to do to finish the task. He has done it. And every time you feel like, man, I, I, I still have this thing inside of me that pulls me toward that, that darkness that I used to live in, Jesus conquers that. He conquered it. That means he empowers each and every one of us to live according to the Spirit. That means that he can demand that we live holy lives, and even if we're not perfect now, we grow into perfection. And so some of you feel like, oh, I'm just stuck in sin. What are you going to do? I'm, I'm just a sinner. Grow up is what you're going to do. Grow up and out of that sin. It is possible. Why? Because it's not dependent upon you. You can't bring your own salvation. You can't bring about your own sanctification. You have to lean wholly on Christ, the God-man who provides it. The good news follows the bad news. The bad news is we're in trouble, right? And Adam, we all sin. The good news releases us from that. Not partway, not 20%, not 99%, right? He releases us from that. When you place your faith in him, rather than death being imputed to you, life is imputed to you, now, not later. Not later when you get your wings, right? I put quotes for those of you who are listening in the audio. Quotes on wings, we don't get wings. But that glorification stage. But now, right now, the Holy Spirit residing in you, the same Holy Spirit that conceived Christ in Mary's womb, resides in you and can stamp out the sinful habits that grieve God, that make your life worse than it should be. That power is available to you now. Why? Because Jesus is the right person for the job of atonement. Let's pray.